Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, that's me, ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug? Ignored a leaky faucet? Pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects. But there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few steps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This episode of Travel Today with Peter Greenberg is brought to you by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment. Listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. 
It's time for Peter Greenberg Worldwide with America's number one travel news journalist. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, your travel detective, Peter Greenberg. Hi, everybody. Peter Greenberg here, and welcome to the podcast that's done from a different location around the world every single week. One day Canada, the next day Thailand, then New York, London. You just never know. This week we come to you from London at the Marriott Park Lane right here in Mayfair. This hotel, by the way, the Marriott Park Lane, is a real hidden gem because there's no signage in front of it. You have to really know where it is. There are lots of Marriotts in London. I mean, they, they when you take a look at the, the Marriott-Starwood uh, merger, if you will, the combined number of brands is, is, is staggering. But this is a one that sort of like slipped under the radar. They've redone it. Uh, big, big renovation. An amazing art collection, not only in the public rooms, but in the guest rooms, and well worth a visit. We'll talk a little bit about the whole history of that hotel a little bit later in the show, but now a, a good friend of the show. He's the travel editor for The Independent right here in London, Simon Calder. How are you, sir? Now, on our end of the pond, Simon, I've been telling everybody it's been a buyer's market because fewer people are traveling because of confusion, concern, fear, or worry about Brexit, not to mention the fact the British pound isn't doing that well. Uh, but on your side of the pond, there are some longer-term implications of Brexit when it comes to travel. Oh, there certainly are. And um, talking to people in the industry, well, if you can find somebody you're doing better than me, Peter, um, who can think of an advantage to the UK travel industry, whether you're looking outbound or inbound of Brexit, nobody can see any. It just means building barriers. It means more restrictions. Um, for the UK inbound, so this is people coming in from the US, from Asia, from anywhere into the UK, we're already seeing really serious problems in places like um, the wilds of Scotland. That is entirely because they cannot get the staff. They've built their tourist industry on lots of people coming in, particularly from the Eastern European nations in the European Union, uh, working very hard, very well. Um, those people are returning partly because the pound is doing so badly uh, but also because generally feeling well this isn't a long-term place for me to stay I don't really feel very welcome so that is actually hitting businesses and as a result of that uh, we, we are seeing um, standards kind of being eroded I would say but then long term it does look pretty bleak with um, particularly for European visitors coming to the UK, they will find barriers have been put up. And I'll tell you what, I think if you're looking at US to, U to, to Europe travel, while previously many people have flown into London and travelled on from there, I think that actually Ireland, and in particular Dublin, is going to do really well because that will be seen as the big English-speaking, welcoming, beautiful, cultured um, place uh, rather than the UK. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, it's all looking quite bleak, I'm afraid. And there's one other item up for bids on the prices, right? And that's bilateral agreements. Oh, I mean, yes. everything has to now be renegotiated. Yes. Right? By country, individual country. So it wasn't as if Britain could just fly to any city they wanted to in the United States and vice versa. It's where do, where do folks in Britain want to fly outside of Britain, anywhere in Europe? It all has to be renegotiated. It certainly does. And the one thing which has absolutely transformed aviation and travel, I think, uh, both within Europe and between the U uh, North America and uh, and Europe is open skies. And Britain is is volunteering to leave those agreements. And they, they that is going to be messy. It is. 
But um, look, the mantra, as you would have heard um, and uh, yeah, in, the, in the time that you spend here, it's all about taking back control. Although from a travel perspective, it looks like giving back control to um, Washington, D.C., to Paris, to Brussels, to Berlin. Um, and that's one of the reasons I think that previous prime ministers have just tried to slow walk this thing because they know what they're up against. Oh, sure. Yes. I mean, it's uh, like, don't open that door. Uh, exactly, exactly. And now we, we are in this uh, this bleak situation. Um, and uh, there, there is actually quite a case you can sort of make for, we don't think the European Union is doing very well, so let's renegotiate a decision, put that to the public. But just to say, are you happy with the European Union? Or, which a lot of people took as, are you happy with your life? Could things be better? Um, they said, well, no, I, I, I could certainly be happier. So they voted to leave. Without um, realising all the implications. Well, um, I think an awful lot of people who currently enjoy, for example, flying um, from their local airport to somewhere lovely in southern Spain, spending four months there during the winter, um, weren't necessarily aware that um, those flights might go, and most certainly they will not be able to spend four months of the winter uh, in, in future. So, um, yeah, there's, um, I think, uh, quite a lot of um, remorse heading our way, as well as um, possibly recession. Gosh, I'm miserable. Yeah, but you know what? I'm going to take advantage of your misery and tell everybody listening to the show back in the United States, you benefit from this in many cases. Because fewer people traveling means law supply and demand, more extra, more empty seats. Oh, sure. The airlines are having a horrible time. I mean, of course, um, November is a great great month for traveling uh, the Atlantic anyway, up to the first week, perhaps second week of uh, December. It's terrific. I'm seeing fares outbound from the UK. Um, I'm not sure what it looks like coming back in, but certainly uh, the idea of paying more than... £300, so $400 to fly to New York, to Washington, to Boston, to Miami um, any time before about March or April is absurd. Of course, Christmas and New Year is different, but right. uh, uh, but but the fares are just you know, ridiculous. And then, of course, January through March, another bargain. So it's all there, and it's not going to go anyway. Uh, it's, it certainly isn't. I mean, there will be a kind of structural... Um, uh, adjustment, I think, once Britain uh, leaves, once um, it becomes clear that the amount of business being done is, is, is falling, um, there, there will be a general uh, bonfire of the schedules for the airlines. But um, until then, yeah, make the most of it. It's not going to last. All right. You heard it from Simon Calder from The Independent. Now, one other thing, speaking of getting out of town, about a month ago, uh, Qantas made some history on the longest flight going from New York to Sydney. 19 hours and 16 minutes on a Boeing Dreamliner 787, ostensibly a test flight to see the, uh, the impact of high-altitude long-distance flying on passengers, on crew, on equipment, on fuel consumption, on humidity, on every aspect of the plane and every aspect on human condition. Well, they've just done it again two days ago, right? London to Sydney, on another 787 Dreamliner. Uh, yes, and I would, you, you say a scientific experiment, I would say a publicity stunt. Um, and uh, <laughs> Really? The, oh, yes, oh, yes. This is uh, what, what they achieved. And look, for goodness sake, um, uh, hats off to them. They have got so much publicity out of uh, what they did flying from New York to, uh, to Sydney in one go. Technically, 
there's absolutely nothing to it. Um, uh, the question is, can they make money doing it? That's oh, oh, sure, yeah. It. That's and really what it is. Yeah. I mean, so look, let's go back to the law. Lo- the last big long distance flight that's still running, which does, as a commercial passenger carrying plane, does hold the record, which is Singapore to Newark. Yes. Uh, when they first tried that flight a couple of years ago, they had the wrong plane on the on the, on the service. They had it wrongly uh, configured, and even though the plane was full, they couldn't make a dime because of fuel costs. Simple yes. as that. So they dropped the flight. They don't use that plane anymore. But now they're back, and they're doing it with a different configuration. It's not first business coach. It's business and premium economy. Because if you hear the word coach for 19 hours, you will take hostages. And there's just no <laughs> doubt about it. So, And they're making some money. They're doing it. So this is really the question. If you're going to add about another two hours to that flight, which is what New York to Sydney would be, right, or Sydney to London – does that tip the scale? Does that go so far that you now have the point of diminishing returns in terms of your profit? Well, there's, it, it remains to be seen. There's very, very, very few city pairs where you could imagine a 20, 21-hour flight actually working. And, of course, um, Qantas uh, thinks that it's hub in Sydney, going to London, going to New York. That is when you would be able to get that to work. Um, and of course, you realize that while all this is going on, Air New Zealand has already announced they're going to fly the route from Auckland to New York. Oh, sure, they are, but it, but it's actually it's actually significantly shorter um, because of the well, great great circle routes. It's it's slightly less of a challenge, um, but but Qantas are really being playing this game very cleverly. There's not actually that much demand for really ultra long haul aircraft, but they are saying to Boeing and they're saying to Airbus, come up with a, a jet which is going to allow us to do this. Um, of course, they'll they'll only want to order you know, half a dozen of wh- whichever it is. Right. Um, but even so, um, good luck to them. There will be some demand. There will be some resistance, I think, from the environmental lobby because, of course, an awful lot of the fuel in the tanks is purely there to carry fuel for later in the journey. And, and the weight of that is, is, is hurting you. Oh, 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 sure, yes. And so it's very dependent on the, on the price of fuel. But uh, they will do it. But can, can I just mention that you, you, you mentioned the London flight, which, uh, which took off a couple of days ago. Um, that's merely repeating something they did in 1988. They actually put a plane in the air, flew it to, uh, uh, for, from, um, uh, for, forgive me, 89, flew it from London to... Uh, Sydney. It was delivery flight. Interestingly, they got a seven four seven four hundred out of Seattle, flew it to London, and thought, "Okay, we're going to just get rid of almost everyone we can on the aircraft, and then get it to Sydney." And they did. So they're not really doing anything new. The trick, as you say, is to do it and make a profit. And you're not going to do it with a seven four seven four hundred with no passengers on it. You might do it with a souped up A three fifty or maybe a Boeing triple seven X. We're not in Kansas anymore.
one of the things I always love to do when I come to London, and because I love London so much, is to find out about other Americans who are living here who've made a conscious decision to come across the pond and uh, and basically put plant their plant their feet here permanently. And one of those people, American expat Chelsea Lambert, is here, uh, originally from Texas, but went to school in my Univers- other uh, University of Michigan, yes. where of course we beat you at football. But yes, that was, let's go Badgers. <laughs> but like so many Americans in London, you made a decision to pick up pick up stakes and and move here. That's right. Yeah, we've been here since April of 2018. So basically, about a year and a half. Yeah, about a year and a half feels shorter some weeks and longer others. <laughs> but I mean, the good thing about it is you didn't have a language difficulty. Yeah, that was really important to us when we were thinking about um, where to relocate. Um, just the being able to speak English here kind of makes it easier to integrate into the culture. Now, had you been to London before? No. So my husband accepted a job transfer, um, and we the first time I had ever come to London was to do our flat search. So that was exciting. <laughs> so this is a brave new world for you. Yes, very much so. And of course, you learn very quickly when you walk out on the street, look right, not left. Yes, a lot of confusion about how to cross the streets when we first got here. But you, you're alive. So far. So far. But what, what kind of research did you do? Because you do a travel blog right now about an American expat in London. Yes, that's correct. So, But what research did you do before you got here to give you at least some preparation? Oh, I did so much. I'm, I love knowing what I'm getting ready to get into. And so um, I actually read a book uh, that was recommended to me called Watching the English. And I forget the author's name. Um, I think it's Kate something. But basically, it was a dive into just all of the different culturalisms of British folks, um, kind of, you know, what to expect from when you go to a pub or just how people interact with each other. So I learned things like, you know, you're going to hear people say sorry a lot. Um, you know what I what I was told once by a very good friend of mine who obviously is born and raised here in London. He said, you know, you can work alongside somebody in London for 35 years, and then one day find out he has a brother. <laughs> and then in America, you find out about the entire family in 10 minutes more than you ever wanted to know. That's yes, that's exactly been my experience here. Lots of uh, reserved folks. Um, there's a joke that you could ride the train next to somebody every single day for 10 years and never know their name. <laughs> well, we can do that in New York, too. That's that's probably true. <laughs> Although in New York, when they tell you their name, you probably want to get off the train. (laughs) But that's another story. Hey, by the way, the name of your blog, which I love, is The Portable Wife. Yes. Yeah, I did some um, noodling. Have husband will travel. Yeah, basically, um, part of you know part of why we came over here was for my husband's work, but he also gets to travel quite a bit, and so um, that's part of why I decided to become a blogger was to be able to travel with him. What was your biggest adjustment? Uh, biggest adjustment, I mean, I have not done a lot of international travel. I have now, obviously, now that we live here, but it was kind of a big shock to come from, you know, a small town living. Um, I had lived in Austin, Texas for a little while, but um, kind of being away from family is, is tough with the time zone difference. Oh, by the way, Austin's not such a small town. They have nonstop service from Austin to London. Yeah, that's true. There's a Norwegian um, and British Air. And British, British Air. Air. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so you hopped on the plane. The biggest challenge for you as an adjustment was? Uh, Definitely leaving behind family and not really being able to talk to my mom as much as I used to. Um, I used to talk to my mom almost every day back home. And now, just with the time zone difference in work, it's kind of tough to to adjust to not being able to. Has mom learned about WhatsApp? Yes, that's actually what we used to chat to each other. I figured as much. Yeah. But I mean, what was your biggest cultural challenge? cultural challenge I would say is just kind of getting around London and you know staying out of people's way I guess I get kind of nervous about um, 
I guess, offending people. Uh, I'm a very reserved, introverted person. And, you know, in Texas, everybody's so friendly. Like, oh, hey, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, please, you can cross here. You can sit here. But in London, it seems like everybody's just a bit more closed off. And so I was very conscious of, you know, not stepping on anyone's toes. But do you initiate conversations? No, no, I'm very introverted. So um, <laughs> Then you'll fit right in. Yeah, yeah. That, so that's what works out really nicely. <laughs> but what have you come to love here in London? Oh, I love so much about London. Um, I'm a big architecture fan. Um, I love all the old European buildings. I love walking around the city. So did you stand in the middle of St. Paul's Cathedral and say a few words so you could hear the echo? Yes. I knew you did. I knew you did. (laughs) It's so funny you say that St. Paul's is actually my favorite place in in the whole city of London. But if you go to St. Paul's, try to get there early in the morning before anybody else gets there and go to the middle and look up and just say hello and you'll drive yourself nuts. Yeah, it's amazing. The acoustics, yeah. Yeah. And what else? Um, I love that there are so many different foods available. London is a very multicultural city, as I'm sure you know. And, I mean, we can have a different country's cuisine every single night. Um, You know, Indian, Caribbean, Mexican, not not so much here, not so great. Um, Yeah, Tex-Mex in London, not so much. Nope, not so much. No, but Indian, great Indian is everywhere. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I had not really had a lot of Indian food before moving here. So, that so was... now you're addicted to the naan bread, aren't you? Yes, yes. naan bread, See? butter chicken. Oh, yes. <laughs> now the museums as well. Yes. But the problem with the museums is most Americans who visit here aren't giving them enough time. Because you, you could spend literally six weeks in the British Museum and see maybe a quarter of it. Yeah, it's so funny you mentioned that. The British Museum, I like to joke, is kind of like going to a rich man's really old library, especially on the first floor. And you just want to soak it all in. There's so many little trinkets and things on all the shelves. And then you get to the, you know, the open atrium, and everything's organized by continent. You could be in there, like you said, for weeks and, and not see it all. And then... Because all of the museums, not all of the museums, but so many of London's museums are free, um, it just makes it so easy to be able to go in there and check them out. Um, even if you just have a couple hours, you don't have to feel guilty that you you know, spent 20 pounds on, on a ticket if you only have an hour or two to stop in. Speaking about 20 pounds on a ticket, what's the one museum that you think is overrated? Ooh, overrated? Or one tour that's overrated? Ooh, that's a good one. For people listening who want to come over here. Um, so I, there's, um, there's a lot of these like hop on, hop off bus tours. Some of them are free, but there are paid ones. And I just think the best way to get around London and really soak it in is to just walk, just walk around. And, you know, there are free podcasts out there where people will walk you through the city, um, and explain to you what you're seeing on the street. And there's no need to, to be driven around and be jostled in traffic. Although I will tell you, Mr. Elitist Traveler here, I actually did a hop-on, hop-off bus about two years, and I actually liked it. Now, I'm not going to do it again, but (laughs) I liked it. I really got something out of it. You find that crazy, don't you? Well, it could be that I have motion sickness, so I can't fully embrace. If you are continuing on to another Southwest destination, please make sure that you check the monitors inside the terminal for your proper gate and flight information. If you are continuing on with another airline, we really don't care. And on Piccadilly, you'll find great bookstores like Hatchard's and Fortnum and Mason. Um, even Asseline has a store there now if you really like to spend a lot of money on excess baggage because their books weigh 700 pounds. But duck into the Burlington Arcade. You'll find the most overrated macaroons in the world, La Durée, uh, and the most overpriced. But then go a little further in, 
and you'll stop at a place that has great history that goes back decades and decades and decades. It's one of the great perfumeries, and that's Penhaligon's, uh, one of the great British brands. And uh, I always stop there because every woman I know sends me on a mission there. Um, and I stopped there recently as well because they're even associated with this hotel, uh, with, with the Marriott, in dealing with tailor-made uh, scents. And, you know, look, you walk into a hotel these days, almost every lobby is scented. Um, and everybody has a distinct branded scent. And so, of course, there's Penhaligons. They have many distinctive branded scents. Joining me now, the chief executive of Penhaligons, who uh, is not from London. He's from that major international capital called Western Pennsylvania, otherwise known as Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh. Lance Patterson, how are you, sir? Very well. Thanks. Thank you. How are you? I'm okay. I mean, you are the distinct perfume house here in London. Um, and you do things the old-fashioned way, don't you? We do. We've, you know, next year we're celebrating our 150th anniversary. And the founder of the brand, William Penhaligon, from, who was from Cornwall, really came to London to discover his rich his riches and not so much from the money perspective but for his passions of scent and he was inspired by all the fragrant uh environment of london in the 1870s which wasn't necessarily the most pleasant uh smell in those days and uh decided that he was going to go on the adventure of creating fragrance well in those days historically you know, it wasn't about smelling good. It was about smelling less bad. Yeah, it was about covering, you know, Body covering odor. the smell. Correct. Yeah. And yeah. also, you know, if you look at the really where leather, they used to tan leather with uh, basically oils, right? And the, the, the fragrance kind of came from that tanning process. Amazing. How many different kinds of scents when I walk into your store can I find? Not to mention the, you know, the, the, the ones that you're going to do particularly for anybody who wants them, but that you can just buy over the counter. Yes, yeah, so we, we, yeah, so we have two types of, we have the type that are ready for you on the day or the type that we can make for you uh, made to measure. We, we have approximately How long 48. does a made to measure scent take? Okay, so there's two types. There's what well, there, there, of course, are. So there's the type that we can work with you in order to find what you like from a, a, a series of bases and accords, and, and we can do that process literally in about an hour, uh, and take you on this really fragrant journey of discovery. And then a we fragrant actually, journey. I love that. Yeah. Yes, and make and, it and, there. And that would be Ode to Peter. That would be Ode to Peter, exactly. <laughs> and Or we have a process that can take up to six months. And it, it you can do that for only 35,000 uh, pounds. So, you know, about $50,000. So not expensive at all. I'm kidding, obviously. And so That would be called, oh, what did you do, Peter? Yes, that would okay. be, oh my gosh, yeah. I really broke the bank. Yeah. And that process can be six months to a year. Uh, and you're working with one of the most famous perfumers in the world. Uh, his name is Alberto Marias. And uh, he takes you and you literally create this fragrance from the ground up. It's an incredible process. Has anybody done that? Yes, believe it or not. Yes. And they admit to that. And they do admit to it. And I would tell you separately some very funny stories. But yes, it's quite a... It's, <laughs> it, it, People that there are people that really just are passionate about scent and they want to have their own distinctive scent. Uh, so we like to have that offering for them. How long have you been doing that? 
Uh, so this specific uh, program, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we actually launched it just three years ago, uh, but over the past 150 years, we've been creating bespoke fragrances, really. Uh, anything for Her Majesty? Anything. So I can't give away any secrets because I have signed an NDA, but uh, in any case- You sound like an ex-Trump girlfriend. I know. We have a couple fragrances, actually. In fact, our first fragrance uh, ever created by William himself, we still sell today, uh, and it's actually- used by a member of the royal family uh, and we have special 500 ml bottles that are filled just for this person and they can go to the store you were at at Burlington Arcade and their valet well they don't go personally their valet comes. no you think they don't go personally they do not go no. personally and their valet comes to pick it up but they do pay uh, it's not for free well, we got that part. Yes. By a, does it stay by appointment? It is by appointment, of course. Lance, and I said this in the introduction, you walk into just about any hotel in the world now, and they've taken a particular uh, focus, if you will, to scent their lobbies, to scent their public rooms. And uh, there is a psychology of scent. You know, do you want to feel energized? Do you want to feel safe? Do you want to feel secure? Do you want to feel romantic? Do you, do you want to feel protected? You guys are doing that, too. Scent is one of the most powerful emotions or one of the most powerful things to bring an emotion forward or a memory. So oftentimes scent is evokes that memory of, you know, you might smell something from your grandmother or your grandfather or I, I, I don't want that. scent. No, you don't want that no. scent. That's true. No. But but there are scents that each of us smell and remember. And well, oh, I, yeah, we definitely remember it. Remember good or bad. Right. And when you and I think today in the environment, uh, it's really important to create experience. And I think the hotel, uh, you know, the hotel or the hospitality industry, uh, even malls uh, today, whether they're in America or in Asia, they scent the the environment because it makes the customer, whether, as you said, feel, bring a joy to them or a calmness to them. So it's very important. Of course, there's trial and error. Um, there's some sense that <laughs> will take people and say, don't come back. Correct. I mean, how do you know? I mean, what are the basics in, you know, in, in this dark science of scent psychology? How do you know what's immediately going to work or who, whose idea was that? Mm. So for us as a brand, Penn Halligans, we, we, are what we, classify, we classify ourselves within this category called niche, which is a, a really more narrow focus of fragrance. So you have your big commercial brands, uh, and then you have your, your more specialized brands like ourselves. So when we're creating fragrance, we're not really thinking about, oh, what's going to be the most commercially successful. What we're thinking about is telling our story. And we work with a perfumer to, uh, and we give the perfumer a brief, but no brief on cost, no brief on what direction. It's up to the perfumer to decide. And we're lucky enough to work with these perfumers that are quite famous in what they do. And they understand what works and what the emotions are and what the right smells are. Sometimes we get it wrong. And, you know, we get it wrong, but some customers might like it. Uh, well, so. I'll, I'll give you an example. You go into some hotels and they've taken particular uh, effort to make the lobby very fruity. Yes, Right, because it gives you a fresh smell. Like you, a, a, the minute you walk in the lobby, it's always springtime. Yes, yes. 
I think that also what hotels do is they think about their customer demographics. So I, the I, older the demo, the less fruity. Well, not no, actually, probably the older the demo, the more fruity. Really, but, but because fruity is something I think more historical. Well, I guess floral is most floral. Okay, but but like at a at a hotel like the Marriott Park Lane, where the customer is quite diversified, but they also have a a large customer coming in from a large amount of people coming in from the Middle East, and the Middle Eastern customers really want something they like statement fragrance they like to be noticed musk uh, we call it it would be oud but you would have say, that again. I wanna, oh, say, say it again i want to hear that word again oud o-u-d <laughs> so there's something oud about you there's something oud it's it's basically a wood uh and it can be in its rawest form terribly smelling but once you add other things to it whether it's a floral or a citrus it really brings out the wood and it's a beautiful fragrance but it also when you walk in you feel powerful you feel confident because it's a statement i mean there are certain scents that would basically say from the hotel perspective we'd like you to stay longer yeah and there are certain scents that would basically we'd like you to check out now yes so we have uh our one of our most historical fragrances and the and the one of the first bespoke that we did was in 1902 for the duke of marlborough uh and that was created for him and that's where he owns blenheim palace which is where winston churchill was born and that fragrance is very universal it's very it's bright it's 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 fresh and when you go into many hotels in the world uh, boutique hotels uh, you will find that fragrance uh, in them whereas when a hotel like the Marriott Park Lane where the customer is more maybe a bit more bold you're gonna find Halfetti which is our signature scent for which is a rose oud which is very noticeable uh, and the customer appreciates it now you also in in a partnership actually with this hotel have come up with a program for guests here if they want their own scent at the hotel. It's the first time we've done something like this. And and I have to say, I, ha- I have to thank the Marriott Park Lane because it was their idea. We, we were developing, we have an amenity, what you call amenity program, which is when you go into certain hotels in the world, well, most hotels in the world, you can, in the bathroom, you have a series of scents. And uh, we- All the designer soaps. All the designer soaps. And- but we have a very specific program that's only in select hotels in the world. And we developed one of our best-selling scents into this program, which is the scent is Halfetti, I mentioned. And the Park Lane was the first uh, to work with us with that scent. And then they came to us, how can we make this more of a, I, we call it 360 experience, uh, which is, you know, kind of like this big term today. And they worked with us in bringing it to life in, one of, in their suites. My baby beside me at the wheel Cruising and playing the radio With no particular place to go That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. 
Audible.com has more than 150,000 titles and virtually every genre. So check it out for yourself. Sign up today at www.audiblepodcast.com slash travel today to get a free audiobook and 30-day trial. He's the author of a biography, well, actually the author of Mansions of, Mister, of Misery, that's a great title, a, uh, a biography of the Marshall C. Debtors Prison and many, many other books on London. Jerry White, welcome, sir. Thank you. You know, I love, most people don't walk London. I like to walk London. Because when you walk London, you know, you just have to look around you to see unbelievable architecture, um, so much of it that didn't get bombed in, in World War II, although we can talk about that. Uh, and But you know what? I'm always surprised. That's one of the reasons I was, I was happy to have you on the show. I'm always surprised to learn of things I had no idea about that were still there, like the debtor's prison. Yep. You can see part of the debtor's prison, the Marshalsea prison, uh, still if you walk down Borough High Street from London Bridge station it's on the left hand side it's south of the river it's south of the river yeah. uh, in a part of london called southwark which in many ways i think is one of the most sort of neglected and misunderstood parts of london it's uh, fascinating it's full of history and as you say if you walk around and you keep your eyes above pavement level just look above the shops look at the the houses yeah, get off your iphone and look absolutely. around absolutely yeah you know you look a little bit above the shop level and you'll see really parts still of 18th and 19th century London still there to be found. And of course, let's not forget the term de- debtor's prison. Well, the Marshalsea debtor's prison was one of the most famous, notorious debtor's prisons in London. There were more prisons in London, it was said, in the early 18th century than in any other city in Europe. How many debtor's prisons? Uh, well, there were three great debtor's prisons in London. But every <laughs> if you owed a little bit of money, you got a little prison? <laughs> Every prison in London actually had debtors in, even Newgate. Um, At any time, on any day in Newgate, up till about 1840, there were more debtors than criminals. So you've got. But the debtors were criminals then. They were put in prison. Well, the the debtors were put in prison by the people to whom they owed money. So they were put in prison by their creditors. Prison for debt was the main way of policing capitalism and credit. If you didn't pay your bills, you could end up in prison. And the shadow of the debtor's prison, you know, hung long and dark over everyone in Can, can you imagine today with credit card debt? They'd, they'd all be in prison. Well, exactly right. I'd be right there with them. There was no mechanism for managing that sort of money. There were no mortgages. There, were, there was no... You pay as you went. Yeah, and it was face-to-face. You know, you paid, you owed money to somebody who trusted you. And if that trust broke down... <coughs> then they could send you to prison. Sorry about this. It's okay. <coughs> I'll, send you to, trust, I'll send you to Coffer's prison. <laughs> if, that, um, if that trust broke down, they could send you to prison. They could have you arrested, have you arrested in the middle of the street. Okay, so let home. me ask you something really yeah, stupid yeah. about this. If they sent you to prison, it denied you the ability to earn any money to pay them back. That's absolutely correct. But there were two great things about sending somebody to debtor's prison, although it deprived them of the opportunity. Great is relative, by the way. Yeah. Well, great from the debtor's point of from the creditor's point of view, is that it focused the debtor's mind. They knew that the shame and the difficulty of being sent to a debtor's prison meant that they would do anything and they would get their friends around them to pay their debts. They would try to organize whatever money they could to pay the creditor who was arresting them. And then they got out. 
Then they got out. What was, the average, settle, what was the average stay? The average stay in the Marshalsea prison was about four months. Dickens's father was there. He was there for slightly over four months. And it, that's the sort of average stay in the early part of the 19th century. But some debtors stayed longer. Some were kept there by their creditors. And some died in debtors' prison. Indeed, in the early part of the 18th, the 18th century, there was a particular scandal in the Marshalsea prison where the keeper of the prison kept back from debtors any charity money, and people starved to death. He was prosecuted on five counts of murder, acquitted on every one. But this was a very, at that point in time, this was a filthy, cruel place, you know, to be put in prison for debt. And when did it finally close? 1842. And then what happened to it between 1842 and now? Between 1842 and now, the prison was converted in the early years into residential accommodation. It was made up of a sort of terrace of back-to-back houses, and they were let out as slum housing, essentially, to families in each room. Um, Dickens wrote about the Marshalsea Prison in a book called um, Little Dorrit, and he went back in 1857 to try to find the prison that he knew from 1824. And he found the old block of the house of houses there lived in by poor people. He thought it had been knocked down, but it hadn't. And in fact, it kept standing, it was later turned into a printing factory, and it wasn't actually finally demolished un- until after the Second World War. It escaped the bombing. But part of it's still around. Yeah, there is one wall, the wall that it shared with the churchyard of St. George the Martyr Southwark. And if you go down to Borough High Street, it's John Harvard Library occupies the site of the old prison. That's your John Harvard, um, who was brought up in Southwark. And the wall of the prison, one wall of it, is, is still there. It has a plaque. It has some information telling you about its connection with Dickens and so on. And you can go along and have your photograph taken <laughs> against it uh, or take a selfie. I'll and do that holding up my American yeah, Express card. Yeah. Just, but... Moving along, because yeah. that's just one building, and you did a whole book on it. Yeah. But World War II history, for me, is fascinating walking through the streets of London, because some of the buildings today had other purposes back then. Right? The Corinthia Hotel was a Ministry of Defense building, yeah. uh, but they've kept Hitler's war, I mean, Hitler, uh, Churchill's war rooms. Yeah. I mentioned Hitler because in all the bombing of London, I'm amazed they never they never knocked down Parliament. Or, well, the, or Buckingham Palace. Yeah, although they were both bombed. And Parliament had to move out of the Houses of Parliament for a time. They met in Church House Westminster. But they weren't destroyed, but it wasn't destroyed. It wasn't destroyed. Buckingham Palace was bombed, but it wasn't destroyed. Uh, And and part of it, of course, is that bombing then was an unsophisticated way of trying... They just opened the Bombay and... Exactly. And they fell, you know, where they fell. I mean, there was no smart bombing uh, at any time. And when... The terrible V weapons, you know, came in 1944-45. They were more targeted. Well, they were. They still didn't quite know where they were going to fall. <laughs> uh, and in fact, many of the V weapons fell in suburban London, in the southeast. Well and the V weapons, the for those people not old enough to remember, those are the very first German rockets. That's right. One was a um, a robot-controlled, as it were, jet-propelled plane, which did huge amounts of damage. Um, oh, and by the way, to put history in total perspective here, the father of that V-2 rocket was a guy named Werner von Braun, who we allowed to leave Germany, and he became the father of the U.S. space program. Yeah, 
it's yeah. crazy. It's amazing what happens with technology, right? I know it is too, and how you know some brilliant men can be of use to in in different countries. I mean, yeah, they, they we have gave no, them a pass. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. So, but when you walk down the streets, for example, uh, Churchill's war rooms, uh, or the underground itself, there—I mean, there were people yeah. living in the underground. Well, that's right. About one hundred and seventy thousand people slept in the underground each night during the main London Blitz, which was May f- uh, September 40 to May 41. And they would queue there to go underground at about 5 o'clock in the evening. They would take their bedding down. Uh, as the Blitz progressed, they had their own pitch. Bunks were put up in the underground. Uh, little cafes were. that The underground trains used to go around with a mobile refreshment room to feed people on the station. Um, the sanitary accommodation was never brilliant because they were... The, the, the platforms were below the sewers. But, you know, in general, people just felt safe there. We've been speaking to Jerry White, the author of Mansions of Misery, a biography of the Marshall Street Debtors Prison. But you've written so many other books that I just can't wait to talk to you about. Just walking the streets of London and going down. I spent a fascinating afternoon. And it was like, I was only going to like spend 30 minutes. I spent three hours, of course, in Churchill's war rooms. And what was amazing to me, Jerry, was that they left it just the way it was when the war ended. Yeah. I mean, the pencils are still on the desk. Yeah. It's very moving, a memento of of that, you know, desperate time when um, certainly, you know, for a period of nearly nine months, London was being bombed almost every night. And where the safety of Churchill and the cabinet, you know, was of absolutely prime importance. Churchill took the decision early on. Uh, despite, you know, this sort of mass bombing from September 1940 onwards, that Parliament would stay in London. The King took uh, the decision early on that the royal family would stay in London in Buckingham Palace. In other words, the government and royalty had to suffer what the people of London were suffering at the same time. So everywhere was vulnerable at this, at this time, really. But war rooms in there were underground. They, they, were, they were down. Yeah, yeah. And, and they were, uh, and they remained um, pretty inviolate. You know, they were, they were not, um, they were not threatened as some of the underground stations were threatened, where you know ordinary people were sheltering. There were, there was a terrible disaster at Ballam Tube, which was bombed, and where the platforms collapsed. And the worst of all was Bank Station, which was, which was bombed, and where people were blown off the platforms into the paths of uncom- oncoming trains. I mean. It, you know, we must remember that, that bombing in London, which killed 29,000 people uh, in the Second World War, uh, caused absolute mayhem to the transport system and to the way in pe- which people got around. But, in fact, they still did get around, I mean, remarkably. Exactly. But back to the war room yeah. for a second. Not only were the pencils on the table, there was paper still on the typewriters. Um, and you saw the way the phones worked. You had the maps up there. You knew where everybody was on 19 in 1945 on the day the war ended yeah yeah i mean it's remarkable really it's a, it's a wonderful place to visit i think you have to book your timed visits to come in because it's a very popular tourist attraction but it is one of the most moving and memorable um exhibitions i think in london if i were to take a walking tour today and there's just so much you can do in london but give me your like greatest hit of where i need to start and where i need to finish well, that's, uh, I mean, I, let's start at the Marshalsea Prison, and let's, uh, which is in Southwark, and move north over London Bridge and uh, into the city of London, which is the very historic heart. I mean, that, the city of London, 2,000 years old. This is where London began 
this is where still its main financial services are, sure. you know, take place every day and then move west, go through the Strand, so from Fleet Street into the Strand, Trafalgar Square, keep going west towards Piccadilly and then north into Mayfair. And, and try not to stop at Fortland and Mason. Try not to stop at Hatchard's, you know. Yeah, I mean, you yeah. will have... But if you stop at Hatchard's, you can get Jerry's book. You can. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, that that just encapsulates, I think, the historic centre, or three historic centres of London. They're all joined. They were joined by London Bridge across the Thames, and they're joined by the Fleet Street and the Strand towards West London and Piccadilly. And as you're walking... Look for the little blue oval plaques, you'll see them, which designate that someone of historic significance either lived there or worked there. Um, there's a pub that's still there. I think the Yield Cheser Cheese, uh, yeah. well, that was that was a Dickens pub. Yeah, that's right. And, uh, and that's on Fleet Street. That's right, it is on Fleet Street. And, of course, it's a, it's a pub where, you know, it goes back to Samuel Johnson's time. I mean, Samuel Johnson, you know, great Londoner. Uh, who came here in, uh, I think, 1739 and died in London in 1784, you can go to see his house. It's not very far from the Cheshire Cheese. It's in, um, uh, I've forgotten the name of the court, but it's just north of Fleet Street, and it's a wonderful, again, another wonderful place to visit. Okay, I'll give you one I bet you don't have. You ready? There's a building, a relatively new-built building. In fact, we used to have our offices there at Newsweek magazine in the 70s called New Zealand House and on Haymarket. And there's a blue plaque on that door. And that one blew me away. Who worked there? Who was the doorman there in around 1940? Are you ready? Yeah, go on. I don't know. Ho Chi Minh. Ah. Who knew? Yeah, yeah. I mean, so you look for those blue plaques, it's like... Stop, think, yeah. try to put it in, per- in perspective. Yeah. I mean, that's, an, uh, of course, because London, you know, there are plenty of, mar- of plaques to Karl Marx in London. London was the center, really, of activity for those Europeans who had been expelled from their country. They could have some sort of safety in London as long as they didn't antagonize the London police. And well, so that's they, been thrown out. Well, <laughs> they kept their noses clean in those days. And, uh, you know, they stayed here. Marx uh, died here after living something like 40 years here. So, yeah, I mean, London was always a cosmopolitan center for intellectuals, free thinkers, and so on. Hello, and welcome to Alaska Flight 438. We'd like to tell you now about some important safety features of this aircraft. The most important safety feature we have aboard this plane is the flight attendants. Please look at one now. My next guest, I love his his job trajectory. He started as a doorman, then went to a porter, and now he's the head concierge of this hotel and a member of Clay Door, Daniel Zimatsky. How are you? Very good. Thank you for having me here. I mean, I love the idea that you started as a doorman because I love, I mean, I know this for a fact, and I hope you'll confirm this. You want to know anything that's going on in the hotel, you talk to the doorman, because he's the gatekeeper. Right, I mean, he gets, he knows who comes in, who comes out. He controls the real estate in front of the hotel. He he knows the many of the taxi drivers by name, and then of course he knows who's not supposed to be in the hotel. 
That's correct. He also is a first impression for every guest arriving to the hotel. So he's one of the most important people, really, because the first impression is what matters, definitely. So it's definitely a good experience for me to to become a doorman first place. Then uh, I went through the stages. I became a luggage porter, of course. So as you have mentioned, so this is definitely something you need to experience to see, to understand their role in order to be a good head concierge. I would love, if somebody asked you the, the, the two jobs I'd like to, to, to have at the hotel just so I could learn, it would be bellman and maid. And the reason is because the maids see the rooms, the only, they're the only ones who see the rooms the way they're occupied, which can be a total mess, right? I guess they can, yes. Yes, they can. You know they can. <laughs> And the bellmen have to bring stuff to the room that nobody can imagine. I mean, what people will lug around. And I'm one, I, I carry big bags, right? What was the craziest bag you had to bring to a hotel, to a room? My record so far for my department is 147 suitcases and boxes. From to one, one room? From one family. <laughs> so that was definitely and how many of the, And how many members of that family were actually in suitcases? <laughs> <laughs> this is something I don't know of, um, but definitely was something you had to plan uh, logistically. And you properly. knew that was, so they had probably trucks coming. Yes, they definitely had that. And from what one, Middle Eastern country was this? Uh, I don't remember right now. That was several years ago, but yes, that was from Middle East. I'm shocked. <laughs> um, that's how they travel. Exactly. The only person who traveled with more bags than some of these Middle Eastern uh, families uh, was Imelda Marcos, who, uh, the former first lady of the Philippines, who when she showed up at the Waldorf Astoria in New York, uh, I think they had three moving vans. Three moving vans. And one of them had to be just for the shoes. I mean, it was, it was crazy. Okay, but as a concierge, and I should say, I said at the, at the introduction for you, member of Claydor, that's the Golden Keys. Um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of Claydor because concierges who are real concierges have those keys. Um, meaning when you see it on your lapel, it means you actually know what you're talking about. It is prestigious society, definitely, and I'm quite proud member of BM, I mean, I'm proud member of this society. And but what it also means is you know all the other concierges, so you guys work as a network. That's correct. So if I need to find a great moving van for my luggage in <laughs> Buenos Aires, you know the guy to call. That's correct, yes. So we meet every month. Uh, we definitely keep a close relationship. We use social media to communicate. So um, we share best practices. We help each other to provide the best service possible for the guests. So. And the other thing is this. You do a whole lot more than get me theater tickets, don't you? We do. I mean, it's, it's more than just you know, uh, getting me a taxi to the airport and theater tickets. It's every kind of unusual request, usually at the last minute, than you can imagine, Quite right? Often, yes. All right. The craziest last-minute request? So, I mean, over those years, I had quite several. I, I was looking for uh, bathroom tiles, um, letter boxes, unusual letter boxes in London. But the first I always remember that was the challenging, as I was three weeks in the position of the concierge, was to ship a Ferrari back to Middle East. So I never shipped a car, supercar before. So this was something you you always remember. And of course, they wanted it tomorrow. Pretty much, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, look, if you've got the money for the Ferrari, then you have the money for tomorrow. That's correct, yes. And so how long did it take you from the time that person said, I want my Ferrari in the Middle East to the time you, you got it there? So, uh, I mean, we used uh, air freight, so it was fairly quick. Oh, that, that he was wanted it flown over. That's correct, of yes. Of course, why so, not? Uh, of course, <laughs> it's the only way to fly, yeah. So the, I just received the car keys, and I was told to ship the car. So um, that was. Or you could have done Ferris Bueller's Day Off and just kept the Ferrari, you know. That would be lovely. Yes, I would definitely <laughs> enjoy it. I'm sure. <laughs> What's the, okay? 
What's the silliest request you get? Oh, um, the silliest, I mean... I, and I would guess it's from Americans. Not necessarily, but sometimes the, the most challenging, fun enough, was to find a, a last-minute mathematics teacher for Saturday morning. That was, it doesn't sound silly, but on Friday evening is quite often a challenge. Quite often it's done by students. They prefer to go out and enjoy their evenings than, than answer their but phone. somebody phone. desperately needed a math teacher. Should there be a rapid change in cabin pressure, oxygen masks will automatically drop from the compartment above your seat, free of charge. And to start the flow of oxygen, pay your flight attendant $75.63. You know, London is exploding right now with new hotels of great design, great location. Uh, there seems to be one new boutique hotel opening up every three weeks and of different pedigree, but all great. And then there are what I call the sleeper hotels. And this is one of them, because if you didn't know this hotel was here, you couldn't find it. It's right off. It's right on Park Lane, but there's no real signage that blares out Marriott. Uh, you, you know, the, the only thing that's great is that all all the London cabbies know it because London cabbies know everything. But most people would just walk right by it and not even know. And that's the beauty of this hotel, and they've done a great job in redoing it. Uh, and one of the great things they've done in this in this hotel is the actual artwork, which I want to talk about as well. Joining me now, the general manager from the the Marriott Park Lane, the uh, the guy who runs this sleeper hotel. Uh, Eamon Thompson, how are you, sir? I'm great. How are you today? You're great. So you're great. from Scotland. I we am know from Scotland. Scotland. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you heard my introduction. I mean, it's really true. It, it's this does not strike me. And uh, by the way, I say this in a positive way, as a typical big box Marriott. It's not. Uh, but in, I talk about the signage, the feel when you walk in. Was that intentional? Yes, it was. Uh, we're, we're a boutique hotel. We we want to uh, really major on that. We don't want to be a big. Uh, corporate hotel. We want to be giving individual service to individual customers right in the heart of London and Mayfair. So it's really important to us not to have that big corporate. Uh, of course, with, with travelers addicted to mileage and frequent stay programs, you're not a, 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 you can't escape that. People stay here because they want their points too. Well, they stay here because it's a great location. They stay here because it's right in the center of Mayfair. It's right opposite Hyde Park. So they love coming here regardless of uh, why they've come. No, listen, location, location is everything. Yeah. How many rooms? 152 rooms. So it's it's not outrageously large and it's manageable. That's right, it's manageable. We have 28 suites, which are lovely, overlooking Hyde Park as well. So it's, it's a fabulous location. Now, you've come here from a long, long period of time in, in Scotland, one of my favorite locations. And if truth be told, I told you this offline, but I'll say it again. I am not a big believer in reincarnation, but I actually believe I lived in Scotland in a previous life. I can't tell you how or why, but every time I go there, I just have the same feeling. And th I mean, that's a very, very special place and a different environment from where you are right now. Oh, completely different environment. I've only been in this hotel two, two, two months now. I've lived, uh, I've worked for 35 years for Marriott in the provinces, so from Inverness to Glasgow to Newcastle, Birmingham. So I've been up and down the country. This is my first trip into London. It's really exciting to be in and, this hotel. And Emma, I must tell you that I've never heard a general manager at a Marriott ever told me that he was working for Marriott in the provinces. Province. I like that. There, there, are the, there are provincial Marriotts. Yeah, well, that's where, that's where I am. So what's the different approach that you have that other hotels don't? 
We're all about individual service. We're about, as you've quite rightly said, this is a, a smaller boutique hotel. And we, no signage. Uh, th- well, there, there's you no signage. F- you've got to look hard yeah, to you've find gotta it. Look for, you've got to look hard for it. But, you know, we, we want uh, people to know where the hotel is and know why they're coming here. They're coming here for individual service to an individual property to get bespoke service. And that's really what we're majoring on. And our customers love that because you're quite right. They've got plenty of choices. They've got plenty of choices in London, but they, they come here time and time again and repeatedly because they know that they know the associates here. They know me. They know, uh, uh, you know, Daniel on the desk. I know you've met before. So Absolutely. And, and he's, he and the team are really important to bringing our customers back time and time again. And when they redid the hotel, I mean, they did a top to bottom, also the artwork. Yeah. That blew me away. You know, look, there used to be an oxymoron. It was called hotel art. It was, it was the same picture of the dogs playing poker and the, courier and the bad courier and Ives prints and stuff that you would never hang in your own home. I have to tell you, in the public rooms here and also in the guest rooms, I mean, you may not realize this, but you're really a gallery. Uh, I mean, there are things here that, you know, I, I'm sure people want to buy. I'm sure they do. Peter Millard uh, curated the uh, artwork for the hotel to give it a wow factor. Um, there's a couple of bits of art that I, I don't know if you've noticed. The, there's a couple of ones just outside the executive lounge. Uh, there's a Renaissance Dutch picture that you. There's an Andy Warhol thing. There's in there. an Andy Warhol there, but it, but she she specialises in in doing pictures from recycled materials, and I don't know if you've noticed that picture, but it's got a little recycle um, symbol on the side of her hat as well, and then the the picture beside. Um, Daniel's desk of Hyde Park. Daniel's the concierge. Yeah, Daniel's uh, Hyde Park, uh, east, looking east. It's a real juxtaposition of uh, the leaves in the park. And then the, right in the middle of it, I don't know if you've noticed, there's a BT Tower right in the middle of it. So it's a real, <laughs> real lovely picture. But the pictures are beautiful. Pictures are beautiful. Have guests have to asked to buy the pictures? Guests have asked to buy the pictures, but that's not something that we've uh, done so far. But then again, price is no object. Something might leave the hotel. For a price. As I said, for a price. That's the motto of Marriott, isn't it? For a price? No. No. Okay, fine. Uh, What's the biggest surprise to you about the London hotel scene now? I think it's a choice. I think uh, there's a huge choice, as you've said. I think um, hotels seem to be going more boutique in style, more boutique in in feel as well, in service. I think what surprised me about this hotel in particular was the swimming pool. I had no idea there would be a swimming pool here, which is fabulous. And you've done a great job of hiding it. it. Uh, well, we've done a great job in hiding it, but that, that I think that makes it even more exclusive, and I think that's that's lovely. It's the only hotel. Yeah, name the hotels in London that have a swimming pool. I can't name any on Mayfair, but there's uh, one or two elsewhere. We're the only hotel with a, a pool in Mayfair, so it's great. Have you been in it? No, I haven't. Well, come on. I know. It? Look at me. I don't look like I've been in it, but uh, it's lovely. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> You've been listening to Peter Greenberg Worldwide. Catch us each week as we broadcast on the new location somewhere around the world. If you like Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. 
The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money, and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.